0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process
1: in all genres.
0: James Dubrow, thank you for being here.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, James, let's start, let's, let's find out about you. Um, how, did, how did you get into writing these books, first of all? like Where, where did that come from?
1: Uh, it's a long story but I'll do it short. Um, I got into crime, my life in crime, and a PhD at the University of Toronto in 18th century English literature, which sounds a long way from crime but it isn't if you know anything about 18th century literature. We had a lot you know fielding, Jonathan Wilde, the thief-taker general, a lot going on. But at any rate, I uh, suddenly got a lectureship cancelled so I needed to get some work a friend of mine was a producer at the CBC. So I got a job as a researcher on a documentary, uh, television documentary. And they asked me for subjects. And I said, having come from the United States to do my PhD, I said, well, the CIA is everywhere. Let's do a thing about the CIA. Now, this is in early 73, right? And uh, they said, oh, well, that's pretty hard to do. And I said, no, it should be all right. Anyway, we did we did a one-hour documentary on the CIA in Canada, spent a year doing it, and it was quite a sensational program uh, on Canadian television. We were attacked by Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the father of the current Prime Minister. We revealed the fact that there was a secret intelligence agency in the Canadian uh, science establishment, and we revealed all sorts of undercover operations and murders and God knows what. Uh, and Willie Brandt had been working for the CIA, a whole bunch of things that came out of that show. We've got five stories in the paper the next day, including two in the New York Times. So from that, I uh, the CBC wanted us to do a series of documentaries on organized crime. So I spent five years working on about eight and a half hours of documentaries on organized crime, the mafia, Asian gangs, uh, bikers, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, I started out by not believing that the Mafia was terribly well organized or a conspiracy. I quickly changed after I read all the material and interviewed people like Bob Blakey and others who had listened to the wiretaps. And uh, from that, the books, you asked me about the books, they came out of the uh, really all the films I did to the CBC, that we had a few high-profile godfathers killed here in Toronto in 1983, so I had to write a, I didn't have to, but I wrote a book about the one that we focused on, the ones we focused on in Connections, it was called the TV series, and uh, Paul Volpe, who was a Canadian gangster who worked very closely with the mob in Philadelphia, Montreal, and Buffalo. So, that book led to, and you know how these things go, that book led to another book about the mob going back into history in the 20s, about Rocco Perry, who worked with the Canadian, who worked with the Al Capone in the 20s and 30s, and his most incredible two wives who, they were these Jewish uh, gangster wives who really ran the mobs in the 20s here in Canada and the 30s. Fascinating women. Someday there'll be a TV series about them. And then I wrote a book on uh, a woman who uh, was a mistress to a lot of mafia people, and would be loaned out to visiting American mafiosos when, when they came here for an evening. It's called Ma- Mob Mistress. And then the most difficult book was the one on Asian gangs. I started that. Well, I started working on that in, in the early '80s. Didn't get the book finished for over ten. 10, 15 years, has so much complicated the names and the trying to cover all the research in China and Hong Kong and all over the world. But there were so many international gangs and had been operating for over 100 years in some cases that were trafficking in people, human beings, drugs, um, and of course, most recently, uh, in fentanyl um, and money laundering hundreds of millions of dollars are being laundered money, but we'll get to that later, um, right now in North America by these Chinese mobs that are directly tied in. This is the important thing. They're directly tied in with the Chinese government. It's the only way it can work in China, the only way it has ever worked in China, really. And so these triads are very closely working with the Chinese government. The, the Chinese government has so many levers that they can use in, in, in dealing with various countries in the world and that's one of the most important ones and they've really been behind the fentanyl epidemic, opioid epidemic in North America in the last 10-15 years and I think Trump has touched on that once or twice but hasn't done that much about it um, well, He's some got of his us, hands full <laughs> He's got his hands full That's, that's an understatement <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, he's busy he's got, he's got the Bible in his hand, so he's ready Bible, um, right? Yeah. Did you ever worry about um, some sort of repercussion or some sort of. Um, like when you're dealing with um, mobs and the Asian underworld and the Chinese government, and you're writing about them and researching about them, and, and um, they've got to know about you. So, um, yeah. do, you, do you ever worry that um, something could happen to you? Or, you know, not well, just physically, but.
1: Yeah, I, I've been careful, but you know you're right. I mean, obviously, a lot of times they did know about me, and some cases. I mean, I've had my close calls. Uh, I remember I was almost shot once in China. I went in uh, over the border from Shenzhen, uh, from Hong Kong to Shenzhen with a friend of mine who was a triad. See, now this is the funny thing: the triad people get quite along get along quite well with the Chinese government people. So, anyway, he took me in. It was showing me the routes they were, they were moving people and drugs on the Chinese side when we got surrounded by the People's Liberation Army with guns and all that. But we talked our way out of it. And there's often, you know, amazing how many things you can talk your way out of. You see that even now in the coverage of the excesses of some police and dealing with journalists. Most journalists can talk their way out of getting too roughed up by cops. In the middle of a protest, and likewise, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, likewise. I mean, I've had dinners with triad bosses in Hong Kong and Toronto, and actually, normally it was quite luxurious. I mean, no, we had fabulous food, no bill, (laughs) (laughs) little presents, (laughs) yeah, little presents. You know, I mean, they're trying to impress me because there are like everything else, like the Mafia and everything else, they're also rival groups, right? So while we have triads, it's not one group. There's literally hundreds of triad groups, and uh, many of them are fighting with each other. They often work together too. But so I was able to play Vietnamese gangs against uh, the triad gangs and uh, uh, the Big Circle Boys, which is one of the ones involved today. These are the, the, the gangsters from Mainland China came out of the uh, prison, the People's Liberation Prisons after Mao. In oh gosh, it would have been back in the '60s and '70s. Uh, the Big Circle Boys gangs operate all over North America, Vancouver, uh, Toronto, uh, certainly in Singapore. Well, not Singapore as much as uh, Hong Kong. Certainly, China. They're they're the number one people in methamphetamine, um, money laundering, say hundreds of millions of dollars literally. Um, and the fentanyl trade. So the big circle boys have to be uh organized crime gang. They're not one they're not one gang though, there are many rival groups within. Which is true of all gangs. You know, the Russian Mafia, there's many Russian mobs, as I'm sure you know, and many biker gangs. So none of these things are you know, they don't Control everything in their orbit. Hmm. Um, you know,
0: so that late, that executive that got arrested, um, the Huawei, um, oh main yeah. line, so is, is this something? Is this something to do with Chinese gangs and underworld as well, or is this um, not no?
1: directly in that case? But you see, there's there's the thin line there. I mean, obviously the the founder of Huawei and uh, his daughter, who was arrested, uh, I doubt if that case is ever going to go anywhere. I mean, they really don't have that much on her. But the, the company like that obviously works with gangs. It, it's you know in the same way that someone like Stanley Ho, who just passed away, the the gambling boss of Macau, who was multi billionaire, he wasn't a gangster himself, but he worked very closely with the gangsters It's part of their way they operate. You work with everyone. You work with government people. You work with gangsters. Um, you work with legitimate people. Um, anything that will increase your your reach and with the least amount of problems because gangsters can cause problems particularly if you run a casino, right? And Ma, uh, Ho ran a casino for like 40 or 50 years. He was a family. His family was from uh, a line of people that ran gambling and casinos going back almost 100, 150 years. So you know, they're, they're, they're rich Chinese business people, and Huawei is no different, that will work with criminal elements as need be. As we mm-hmm. saw, for instance, when there was a problem in Hong Kong, well, big problem last year, they used elements of the triads to beat up people in democracy. Movement, Not Huawei, but the government. Um, mm. Huawei <laughs> would do it very diplomatically, whatever they did, but they're it's it's not black and white in China. It's all gray.
0: Yeah, I, you know I have to. It, it's it's pretty. Um, it's pretty. Um, I don't know how you say this. It seems to be really quiet. A lot of people don't realize that there's um, such um, an underworld existing in Canada. It's always a surprise. Like when the money laundering happened and made the news, everyone's yeah. sort of shocked, as if like that doesn't happen here. Um it does why do you, yeah, it does, but why do you think that is why 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 are Canadians uh, not noticing or not aware of it, or are they just denial or what do you think?
1: Well, everyone was asleep at the switch, and uh, a lot of that money that came out and still being investigated, oral commissions and this and that uh came out uh, through casinos where it was pretty hard to detect uh since gambling became super legal. In Canada Uh, so these tens and hundreds of millions of dollars were just flowing through all these things and the DEA was on to it pretty early but uh, they kind of watched it you know and and then I'm not quite sure I don't remember exactly what made it surface but there were a few public events that made it surface a few uh, uh, I'd have to go back and look but it seems to me there was some uh, over criminal activity that appeared um, and they suddenly realized what was going on there was actually a senior Mountie, uh, RCMP officer who figured it out in the money laundering department and he he took it over I think he's still in charge of, of dealing with it because it's, it's so massive but it's not just Canada I mean, it's through US companies and of course in the United States it would be mostly through private companies uh, that you wouldn't have access to necessarily so but you're right, it was kind of a sleeper issue. In fact, so much of a sleeper issue that Asian crime generally was, was almost not looked at at all, you know, for the last 15 years, except for the odd killing and the odd, you know, we had a, a guy ended up in cement in Toronto Harbor. He was a gambling guy. And the <laughs> rivalries between the Vietnamese gangs and the odd killings and shoot-ups in Chinatown. But yeah. we didn't really have a feeling, and of course, they were involved in as marijuana became more and more available and grow-offs. They were running most of the grow-offs in, uh, in Canada. Uh, they would bring over Vietnamese women to sort of care the plants, and they would uh, you know, sell the drugs in Canada into the United States. So there was a lot going on, but somehow it didn't get all put together by, by anyone. You know, it hasn't been a RICO case in the United States against Asian crime in a while. There hasn't even been a big case in Canada against Asian crime, aside from the money laundering and the talk about the fentanyl. There hasn't been a big case. There have been drug cases, heroin cases, which connect to the same crime groups. There are also big circle boy gangs, mainland Chinese gangs. But it has been a sleeper issue. And part of its political correctness, you know, for a long time, particularly in Canada we didn't want to identify it as Chinese or Vietnamese or even Asians. You know, when I started working on this in the early 80s, it was the Chinese unit and we had a triad operating right here in Toronto so they could hardly deny it, right? They were extorting students and they were doing all sorts of incredible things here in Toronto and dealing with all the the gangs in the United States. And then we had a lot of Vietnamese gangs here in Toronto and a gang war with 10 or 15 people were killed in in, uh, Chinatown in the 90s. So these things became very, very open and discussed. But then there was a reaction against that. The community, uh, kind of like uh, the Italian community, um, got together and said, no, this is anti-Asian, anti-Chinese. And so the police kept changing the names of the departments and there was less and less focus in the media on it, and they just went undercover. And hmm. happily, you know, happily selling drugs, methamphetamine <laughs> and marijuana and grow-ups and fentanyl and and making a lot, a lot of money in gambling. I didn't talk about gambling. Yep. I
2: mean, we really hear... We re- rarely hear about it here in Vancouver anymore, which is odd. That's I amazing, Yes, that, yeah, Yeah. That I mean, is
1: amazing, because... Vancouver was the heart of the gang wars of the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asian gang wars were just yeah. I mean, I was
2: it. seemed like every every other day there was a uh, a retaliation murder from one side right. or the other. And and lately, we don't hear about anything. I don't know if anything is just not going on, or maybe they've moved on to other things.
1: I think that some of the gangs are still there that were fighting. Uh, but the, the 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 UN gang is still around. But the there's so many different groups now, not just Asian, uh, for one thing, and for the other thing, well, in Vancouver, the smart Asian gangsters have moved on. They moved on to uh, fentanyl, where really, they're making lots and lots of money. You know, a lot of the things that they were shooting each other about was not really much. It was bribery money. It was. Um, small time uh, marijuana and methamphetamine uh, systems and they were they were having to fight with bikers and the russian mob and the mafia too where they conned this whole fentanyl thing through you know making it legally in from china mainland china and they also conned a lot of the money laundering thing back in a few years ago so that made it to it made it a lot easier, and for some reason, law enforcement didn't get onto it, as we said earlier, for a long time, which made it even much easier. And then the names are very confusing for reporters, and you know, I'm trying to sell stories over the years about Asian gangs. People always said, no, the names are too complicated. You have too many hoes, and, you know, uh, people can be very simplistic sometimes, you know, in yeah. Um, yeah. And trends. And, but the thing is, the names are actually very colorful. And you know this goes back. Talk about colorful. You know when they were when the Chinese gangs were really covered was back at the turn of the 19th century and, and the 20th century rather. And the um, and the uh, wars between the hatchet, uh, the hatchet men. uh there were incredible tong wars between 1900 and 1920s in Vancouver and San Francisco and New York, even in Toronto where the hatchet men would, you know, uh, go around intimidating and killing people. And they had to bring in the uh, the uh, uh, ambassador from China and a judge to sort it all out after many years. It was pretty sensational. You know, one Tong boss wrote his memoirs back in 1930. It was very popular. Um, and these Tongs were very powerful groups. They were mostly groups of family groups within New York and other places but they had criminal activities included you know it's rather complicated why these criminal activities came that way because it really is because when the Chinese came to North America there was a lot of prejudice and um, a lot of bigotry against them so they weren't allowed to bring their women they weren't allowed to stay very long they came for the railroads or the gold mines and basically they had to bring in their own, The men they had working on the railroads and the gold mines, they had to bring in their own uh, women. So they brought in prostitutes. They had to bring in their own drugs, opium, and make their own drugs. And and activities, gambling. So all those things were almost, you know, made made possible by the way the bigotry was. So we had all those things that developed uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, in, in West Coast and, and the East Coast, certainly in New York, and the subsequent Tongu Wars. So it's a long cultural history to all of this. I have a lot of this in a book I wrote called uh, Dragons of Crime, which is I just reissued on a uh, on Amazon.com as an e-book, Asian Laws in Canada. There haven't been many books on that subject at all. Hmm. You know, it's, I wonder uh, why, is
0: do you think it's just because there's it, people don't feel threatened by
1: it? That's part of it. You're right. People don't. They feel much more threatened by the mafia, uh, by bikers. Uh, you're right. And street gangs, obviously, uh, certainly in Canada, and I'm sure I know in the states, street gangs of, um, yeah, yeah, black use, Somali use, Haitian use in Montreal. They're much more threatening because they well, they're much more visible. You know. Yeah. Well, I they, think
0: people, well, with these gangs, the Asian gangs, they tend to uh, focus on each other. They tend to kill each other a lot more than coming out, and uh, you very seldom hear about someone being killed by accident or involved in this. So that has well, nothing happened. to do with it the happened. gangs. It happened, it happened in, in New York. Yeah.
1: It happened in Seattle, I think. It certainly happened in San Francisco. You know, when they had, back in the 90s, there yeah. was mass killing at a gambling house in Seattle, I believe, and there was one in yeah, Uh, do you remember that? I don't, but uh, yeah, well, the gambling houses were run by the triads, and there was battles with Vietnamese gangs, and there was a lot of murder but that's why I say, back in the early 90s mid-90s, it was much more common to see coverage of it, and the other problem is the names are so complicated it's not like Al Capone or John Gotti right, right. we're talking about Lao Wing Khoi which is Announced differently yeah. than it's spelled, yeah. K-U-I. Uh, you're talking about names that people don't relate to. And that's a problem, too. So there's a lot of cultural reasons for that. Um, and the fact that there haven't been heroes made out of any of the criminals, you know, uh, as, as the same way they have with the Italian mafia, or even bikers with sons of anarchy, say. Uh, yeah. They haven't been the same level at all with Chinese... Uh, gangsters. I mean, Eddie Chan was one, Nicky Louie in New York, but they come and go so fast that they don't get known by the public at all, and so they just pass through the system for those vaguely Hmm. exotic names.
0: Well, You you, you would think you'd be able to write something about, um, you know, because a lot of the stories like Al Capone and and all those, um, there's been a lot of movies and stories presented, right? So I just... Well, yeah, I just wonder why they couldn't do it with some of these Asian gang
1: leaders. Well, they did. They did in the 20s, well, 30s, and they did, uh, again, a little bit in the 90s, not a lot. Uh, But right now, you're right, there hasn't been much. I mean, there's one famous movie, well, all the Chan movies, but uh, The Year of the Dragon. You ever see that movie? No, that was about triads, and uh, and and they were connected in the movie with New York. And I saw it in Toronto when they mentioned the man in Toronto, in the movie in Toronto. Everyone roared, you know. Uh, but it was you know Hong Kong, China, uh, New York, Toronto, San Francisco. It uh, was the year of the Dragon. Uh, Mickey O'Rourke very fine movie, very sensational. It just for some reason uh, it hasn't been gone into by the by the sensational movies or even the whole true crime genre which is so popular right now and documentaries you see very little about Asian crime you know I'm working on two different ones right now actually three uh, two of them are on serial killers for some reason the true crime documentaries love serial killers cases yeah <laughs> and there's a company called Oxygen do you know it and
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've been on one of their shows, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Go, I'm about to be. I, don't, I think it's on in August. About a, a that like exotic murders and there's one that didn't even get any attention in Toronto—a gay murder. Guy had his husband murdered through a hit person anyway, who was a lover. And they're doing a full hour on it, in oxygen. And then they're doing the serial killing, of course, which I've done other things on. Uh, MacArthur, the guy who slaughtered eight people here in Toronto in the last couple of years, Uh, long complicated story, police were totally screwed it up for a long time so they're doing that but I don't know how sensational they are or whether they, and the other thing they tend to do is recreate things and I'm a little worried about that do you know what I mean? oh yeah, yeah yeah. yeah. thematic recreation, they tell me they're not going to but we'll see
2: yeah, they become very fictionalized and uh, and that dramatic recreation creates the story in people's minds and they believe that's what happened.
1: Yeah, and even the CBC, which is hardly, you know, the Canadian Broadcasting Library is hardly a uh, sensational American media outlet, but even they do that. Just recently I saw a program about the, the, the police officer in the case called The Detectives. It was also about the serial killer, but they had an actor playing Tank insignia, the cop, and it lost all credibility in my mind. Having an actor speaking the words, and they had one of the victims, you know, tied down in the bed, which also lost all credibility because it was recreated. They had an actor playing the cop, but they also had the real cop in the show, so it was very confusing from a, uh, a storyline point of view, to say the least.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the
1: CBC that's doing that, that's the public broadcaster.
0: Well, they're all trying to get in on the uh, uh, the popularity of it all, I guess. And exactly. and you know, when I did that show, I, it was the same thing. Um, they they only want the real um, salacious and and right. wild parts, and you know, they want to keep people uh, tuned in. I guess.
1: Sure, well, that's understandable. I mean, you can do it responsibly, and and particularly in the, in the serial killing case here, the the most recent one. I mean, the cops. Or, you know had gone down tunnel vision uh, about a cannibalism ring for three, two years and then left everything for four years while more people were killed so there's lots of responsible journalism that has to be done there so I'm hoping they're not going to avoid that but it's hard to say I did a show here in Toronto and it hasn't come out yet and they weren't focusing on the police because I, I helped get the police the lead police investigator but they will bring it up for sure because it's part of the story but until I see it, I'm just not sure because it's such a sensational story. You, you've dealt with serial killers; you know how sensational yeah, it can be. It's
2: fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, there is that
1: aspect, I admit. And the police are often way behind them. That's why they're successful serial killers—they get away for it for so long. You wouldn't be much of a serial killer if you got caught right away. Yeah, that
0: yeah, makes yeah.
1: it real challenging for the cops.
0: Yeah, it's pretty interesting the whole thing. Uh, Canadian crime, but is different than the American crime quite a bit, Mm -hmm. and even the reporting of it. Um, um, So it it, it has a different feel to it, I think.
1: Usually, yeah, but but you you should have seen the coverage uh, a couple of years ago as the bodies were being discovered. It was over a period of a, a year once the police really got into their investigation. They were discovering bodies and planters, and it was so sensational. And yet, the media here went right along with it. Overnight, we became the American media. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. incredible. <laughs> they were staking out for, you know, trying watching cops looking for bones in backyards yeah, and, and all this stuff. It was pretty bad.
2: They're still looking uh, at Carth for murders. Uh, the uh Murders from the village in uh, the 70s, I believe, or the 80s.
1: Yes, I know about that because I did a lot of work on that uh, uh, during the whole period. And I was living in Toronto in the 70s. I remember those murders. We were all terrified. Mm. Uh, Some of them were murdered as coming to one of the major bars. But uh, believe me when I say there's very little evidence to tie him to anything in the 70s. Mm. Um. He was married then. He didn't seem to be killing people. He, he didn't really start until around 2000 when he uh, attacked a, a fellow in the gay village. But they are looking, and it's always possible. Um, but eight murders is, is pretty, pretty impressive, and there are another four that he almost killed. So that's 12. Actually, there's another one. 13. Uh, for any serial killer, that's a lot, and mm-hmm. he got away yeah. with it for so many years. It was only in 17 he was arrested, so he got away with it for over 15 years.
0: Oh, and, and he was he, now. So he was eating uh, the the people he killed, or no? What was you know, that's, no?
1: That's Jeffrey Dahmer.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so what was what was the McCarthy's uh, motive? Do you think, or what, oh, what do you think he was doing?
1: his motive very complex. Um, but what he actually did was he, he um, ensnared mostly uh, recent immigrants from Asia, uh, from Sri Lanka, uh, from Iraq, uh, Iran, uh, Iran was one of them. Anyway, from uh, recent immigrants who were slightly vulnerable. Not that much younger, but in the 20s and 30s. He was older. Now, MacArthur was 67 when he was arrested, so he was one of the oldest serial killers ever. Uh, there was a sexual motive for sure, but a lot of it was he had relationships with them before he killed them. I mean, the first murder was someone he had, had working for him. He ran a landscaping company, and he was working for him, and he had a, rela- a sexual and social relationship with him for years uh, before he killed him and put him in a planter. And then kept him on his Facebook page for another ten years. He didn't have that many friends on Facebook. Koff should have been able to find that because the guy had been missing all that time. Uh, you know, he, he, he and he kept he kept things that he you know, just like most serial killers, he kept things in relation to their bodies and corpses, and he kept the bones very close. He had a place where he stored all the bones and all the. Uh, the bodies and they were never found so that was a, 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 a clever technique but in terms of why he killed them I think it has a very complicated having to do with how he dealt with his own homosexuality and the thrill he got, he was into a bit of S&M sex but that wasn't the cause of it either, often though a lot of these people and certainly the ones that got away were into some hot S&M thing where he just went too far and they realized that he might kill them well, they didn't go to the police and and of course drugs were involved sometimes too uh, it was pretty uh, it was almost totally sexual uh, why why he why he did it it was part of that crazy killer thing that they can be part of you not by eating them but by killing them you know by total control I don't know if you ever spoke to a serial killing exit like Peter Vronsky, but they can explain it better than I can. But, uh, it's, it's, it's fairly complicated, the motives. It's about control. It's about identity. And, uh, it's about a lot of serious psych- psychological issues. Obviously, I saw MacArthur in court. He was a broken man. He had no control. Uh, he said nothing. Absolutely nothing. Even mm-hmm. as he pled guilty to eight.
0: Eight homicides. Wow. Yeah, Peter and I wrote a book together. I just talked to him yesterday, so yeah.
1: Oh, well you know, him. I know him. Okay.
0: okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's a yeah. a character. He's a, yeah, he's a he's a guy.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I like him. Like
1: him a lot. Oh, um, he's very good. Yeah, I, I knew him before he got into serial killing as a specialty, but. Did I say serial yeah. killer as a specialty? <laughs> I, mean. yeah, I was going <laughs> <laughs> to the job. Exposing serial killer as a specialty. Yeah. And he does it well. Yeah. He does it very well. He explains it well. Uh, I saw him in a documentary by the film, the film company I was working with last year in another film, and it was about the Unabomber. And he really explained it so well in just a sentence or two. He's used a lot in it. It's the Unabomber one where, I don't know if you saw it... I think it was on yeah, Netflix yeah. in the states, but uh, where they have an, uh, an audio interview with him, yeah, uh, in jail. Anyway, right, Bronski's right. throughout that; and he's excellent in that. Just has these very good points to make, and usually in a sentence that you can understand in in English. Yeah, there's a lot of serial yeah. killing experts, criminologists who don't speak in English.
0: Yeah, it's too, it's too far uh, removed. People don't understand it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and wow. and. Uh, to be fair, they're they're criminal they're criminologists and they're you know, yeah. PhDs and in in, in, uh, in specialties and they and they, they try to narrow it down but but what Peter does is he tries to make it more accessible, so to Yeah. Which is really yeah. important, good. I think.
0: Yeah, he's a good way to get it across to people. Um, now now uh, the other thing too, you're covering a lot of mob mafia. That's another thing. I I think, in general, people think that the mafia is done. It's sort of past. It's it's kind of over its heyday. Um, That's not really true, is it?
1: Well, it's over its heyday. Certainly, Uh, it's a totally different thing now in twenty twenty than it was uh, in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, before Rudy Giuliani and all the rest went after all the people in the states people here but we still have a lot of mafias it isn't one mafia there's the Italian mafia there's very big in Canada's what we call the Andrangheta what they call the Andrangheta which is the Calabrian uh, mafia which is extremely big in Italy Italian police have been going after them the last 20 years is one of the largest mafias in Italy is the Andrangheta and of course the Sicilian mafia is still around but it's not nearly as powerful the families in the United States not nearly as powerful and um, the one in Buffalo is just starting to restart itself. It's been it's been very weak the last few years. The five families in New York have been pretty weak the last few years. Not like the 60s and 70s when Banana was around and Galenti, you know, these legendary figures, or even John Gotti in the 80s. Um, so the mob is still there, and in Italy, of course, they're they're involved right now in pandemic scams, if you can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> naturally the Sicilian and the Calabrian and of course the uh, Naples the Camorra so I would say there are more more mob families now uh, not as powerful not as singularly powerful as they were back in the past but certainly all around and certainly in the United States too but not as noticeable you, know, what, what you, is know, it you that, that f- sorry
0: I was just going to say, what is it that they do now um, that's so different? Like, What, what kind of things are they, um, are they focusing on?
1: Well, they do everything. I mean, they're very much in the fentanyl trade. One of the last convictions we had here of a major mob family, Andrangheta and uh, all of the five families in, in New York involved with the Andrangheta here in Ontario and upstate New York was, was involved in fentanyl. So they were doing fentanyl uh importation with Chinese actually, with the uh, triads. they're not stupid, you know. but then a lot of the mob families are still doing what they always did. gambling. Um, we still have uh, a lot of uh, illegal gambling, uh, particularly on off offshore gambling machines and things that the, the mob controls. Uh, union union stuff done as much as they used to be, of course, uh, drugs, big time. Other than fentanyl, they're still involved in, uh, you know, the various heroin and uh, methamphetamine, all that sort of stuff. Marijuana, of course. Uh, so they're still involved in all the everyday things, but uh, and of course murder and all the other things that come by, uh, come by of being a gangster. But they pretty much keep up to date with. Uh, we've had a lot of murders in Quebec and. Ontario in the last few years, basically because there's been fighting among the various groups in the dominant mafia family, which was run by a guy named Rizzuto and he died about six or seven years ago. And there's been a lot of problems when he was in jail in the states for a while. You know, if you remember Rizzuto he was went to jail for some killings of banana family lieutenants many years earlier. Anyway, it created a lot of um, instability in the mobs here in, in Canada and it's still still existing, we still have people fighting it out to the death We uh, every six months or so we have another body of a Andrangheta or a Rizzuto family associate found dead so it goes on I haven't been following it as closely in New York and in, in the States as recently but there have been the odd thing but they're nowhere near as dominant as they once were you're quite right there Probably because of all the other groups, you know, as we talked about, the mainland Chinese gangs, the Vietnamese gangs, the Russian gangs, the uh, Russian mobs, the bikers all over the place, particularly Hell's Angels in Canada. Uh, We have a lot, a lot of different criminal groups, so it's not easy for the Italian mob to dominate as, as they used to.
0: Now, are, are these groups, a lot of them, into the human trafficking? Is that sort of a big, um, a big thing for these gangs?
1: Yes, it always has been, too. You, know, going, you go back to the Mafia 150 years ago, they were doing human trafficking. Uh, you go back to Asian crime 150 years ago, they were doing human trafficking. In those days, they were bringing young girls into San Francisco by the crate to provide the men with women. Uh, and they went out to ship them up to Vancouver that was 150 years ago Um, so the trafficking continues because it's something they can control particularly with the Chinese government, for many years people wanted to, a lot of people wanted to get out of China and the uh, snakeheads is what they're called within the Chinese criminal underworld snakeheads provided outlets, usually they were very well connected with the Mainland Chinese bureaucracy, the generals, the military, and they would get the people out from various places in Fujian province and, other, and Canton area, get them through Hong Kong and take them on these very long routes through Europe and South America, Canada it used to be, uh, and, and to a new life in New York City or Toronto or Vancouver, where they would start, you know, working you know uh not as legal uh, re- legal residents but uh but they would start working and the gangs had more people when they brought them over so there was there's been a long long history of human trafficking and of course the women were often used for uh, some of the uh, massage parlors which we still have quite a few of in Toronto uh, I believe you have some in the United States too Oh, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) geez. They they, they appear quite innocent, you know, but some of the girls in those places, in the Asian-run, Chinese-run, massage parlors are usually kind of indentured. You know, we talk about slavery being such a horrible thing that it was in the 19th century, but we've had indentured slavery throughout the 20th century uh, of of peoples, uh, and you see that within the Asian crime community. It's a way of paying because it can be from thirty to fifty thousand dollars to get out of a little village in the Fukien province. So you've got to pay it back to the snakehead. So part of that, you work for a few years in a, uh, a massage parlor if you're a woman. If you're a guy, you, you do some jobs for them. You know, uh, whether it's kidnapping people or running a you know a pot pot establishment or running drugs across the border. A lot of speed goes both ways in uh, the United States and Canada, even with the border and even with all the walls that Mr. Trump has put up <laughs> down in Mexico.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and, and none of the... Now, now, the Hells Angels, what are their connections with the mobs nowadays, or what do they oh, do gosh. for the mob, or how do they w- work, work with them? Like, what's what's their pri- what's their priorities? Well,
1: in Canada, the Hells Angels have, in the last 20 years, become supreme. They're the major biker gangs throughout the whole country from British Columbia to the Maritimes, certainly in Ontario and Quebec. It was a biker war going back 20 years ago between several biker gangs, uh, the Outlaws, uh, the Rock Machine, but the Hell's Angels became supreme. So they and their, uh, their striker clubs are the ones that run everything. They work very closely with the Mafia And street gangs in Montreal there have been cases uh, where the three of them get together, the Hells Angels leadership, the Mafia leadership, which is weakened, as we said, not as dominant, still members of the Rizzuto family and their colleagues, and members of the street gangs, which in Montreal are Haitian primarily, uh, get together and sort out various things They carve things up, drug territory, a whole bunch of things. And there have been murders involving all three groups. Sometimes the Mafia would use Hell's Angels hitmen. Sometimes uh, the Mafia would use Street Gang Haitian hitmen. And uh, funnily enough, the Hell's Angels use their own people, <laughs> pretty much. They don't usually go outside of their group for killing people. Um, but the Hell's Angels are pretty dominant in, in drugs uh, in a lot of areas in Canada, Uh, which, of course, means the United States, too, because the border doesn't mean a lot when you're dealing with organized crime. There's so many ways around the main border. Um, So the the Hells Angels are involved in everything from fentanyl to methamphetamine, all the drugs you can think of, trafficking in women, of course, uh, gambling, just so many different activities. Extortion, of course, still um, there's just so many. And they're pretty powerful in Canada. Now, in the United States, it varies from state to state and area to area. I would say Quebec and Ontario are the two most powerful areas for the Hells Angels in Canada. And there haven't been too many good cases here in Ontario lately. Um, the Toronto Hells Angels, they, they also involve legitimate business. They own bars. Uh, they're in pot businesses now. We, you know, pot is legal throughout all of Canada. So. Some of those businesses are run far and by the Hells Angels. And it's very hard yeah. to get at that. The police work in it. They still have special units and all that. But I'd say the Hells Angels, there are three really dominant international groups in North America, and I would say the uh, Hells are the bikers, the Asian gangs, which includes the, uh, the Big Circle Boys and the Vietnamese gangs and the Filipino gangs, and some of the uh, Russian mobs, I guess, that the bikers will be the third one. And there are other groups as well, but it's amazing. I started out working in organized crime, as I think I told you earlier in the interview, in a series for the CBC in 1974, early 74. And I never would have thought, 45, 46 years ago, that, I, there, would, that there would still be so much organized crime and that I would still be working in that area at all. It's gotten far worse than it was in the 70s and 80s. And in terms of overall organized crime activity quite amazes me now that I'm 74 and there are just so many organized crime groups in Toronto and Montreal yeah. and throughout the states, throughout the world, you know, I'm sure you've read McMafia, I mean, that all the Slavic and Russian groups that came out of the demise of the Soviet Union, it's incredible. Just
0: incredible. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, what do you plan on doing now? Like, where where do you go from here? Are you going to continue doing these these types of books and research?
1: Well, I'm not doing books at the moment. I'm, I might do one on the MacArthur case if this one that's supposed to be coming out doesn't come out in delayed for some reason. Um, but I think only because not so much about the sensationalism at all, which is there, but a lot of that came out during a sort of an aborted trial but because of the police ineptness uh, in dealing with a lot of this, and that I, I do want to expose. Um, I've been working um, in a lot of different areas, uh, you know, documentaries, that sort of thing, helping out. I'm kind of, in a way, semi-retired, because I'm working as an uh, advisor, consultant, whatever you will, for these film companies, mostly. Don't have much radio in my life. Although I do have radio when it comes to ongoing crimes. I also a spokesman. I mean, I not a spokesman. I'm a commentator in Canadian media when various organized crime things come up. Which a couple weeks ago there was something, you know, a shooting, a killing, a, uh, an arrest, and and so they put me on the CBC or the CTV news or the radio. The radio, yes. Uh, we have one wonderful radio station in Canada still It's uh, well we have several but the CBC uh, in its wisdom has a great show every morning called uh, Metro Morning if you've ever heard of it and they've been covering everything from crime to you know organized crime to the serial killer very thoroughly because that's the one thing about radio you have all this time you know I mean Metro Morning has several hours every morning just for Toronto, Metro being Toronto, right? Yeah. They have several hours to deal yeah. with what's happening in Toronto. So they have, whereas the TV news usually has a few minutes, and it, it's much more superficial. Yeah. So, so radio still has its place, and I and I do I do some I do quite a bit of radio. I did some really recently. And these days, I don't even ask for money anymore as <laughs> consultant. <laughs> I was able to invest. Do you have a web website? Yeah, I do have a website. Oh, I was going to say, do you I'm have the, the Crime Writers of Canada page? Uh, uh, I, a, I used to be president and chairman of the Crime Writers of Canada, which is a, mostly a group, a professional group of uh, um, mystery writers, detective story writers, and true crime writers. It's been around for about 30 years, at least 35 years. And I used to be in charge of the awards committee. We just had our awards. Uh, some fabulous writers are in there. So I have a web page. I'm in there. Are you in there? There you are. <laughs> so you can look me right up there. Yeah. I'm going to actually do a web page this year with a friend of mine who's uh, kind of a specialist in that. But I haven't uh, haven't done my own web page. I just have been using the primary so anyone can find me that way. There's a lot of people, you know, who have been burned or hurt by organized crime they have to find me and they usually find me through the crime writer's page I call them walk-ins you had walk-ins? yeah <laughs> so um, yeah that's, that's how I do it and of course I, I, uh, for a friend of mine I, I worked uh, doing these e-books of three of my more popular books over the years uh, one called Mob Rule and one called Mob Mistress and the third one Dragons of Crime which we talked about they're all available through the Amazon page and a few other digital websites. I'm not very proficient in all that, but they're very inexpensive. You know, and it's something like seven dollars or eight dollars. They're not very expensive. Um, hmm. To pick up that well,
0: we'll have all that up. We'll put that up on our oh, website. Oh, thank too you very much. People, I appreciate uh, that. Can just uh, find you real easy, and uh, and uh, any mob looking for you, we'll we'll help them <laughs> out. Um.
1: I don't think they'd have too much well, trouble finding me. <laughs> we have one gangster who won't die here lately. His name is Pat Luciano. They tried to kill him about ten different ways in the last few years. He's been after me, but he barely escapes. Oh. Last time he got shot four times, and he got out without half his face gone. <laughs>
0: That was exciting. Yeah. You know, when you say back just just before we go, you say police ineptness for the Macarthur case. Um, now, do you think that's because it's gay related? Is it is it that kind of an issue in in Canada, or is that not an issue?
1: Well, it's part of the issue. It's very like most things. It's very complicated. But uh, part of it right. is they just don't know a lot about the gay world. Two, they didn't go to the right people. And three, they got into... I mean, they did seriously want to try to solve the first few cases, three of them there were, uh, but they got into uh, tunnel vision. They got in some leads that turned out to be bad about a cannibalism ring. It's a long, complicated story, but they spent a year and a half on that. It didn't pan out. They arrested the guy for um, Kitty pawn eventually. It was a faux cannibalism ring. There were real cannibalism rings mm. in Europe, but this was not a real one. But as a result of that, uh, they lost four years until, from 2013 to 2017, while the serial killer was killing four or five people, uh, they lost it. They weren't even investigating. And they didn't come back to it until, at that point, there were quite a few people missing, obvious people missing in 17, and they went back and it only took them a few months to solve it then but they had left it for four years, which allowed the killer to kill out. And that partly was that they just weren't familiar with the gay world. There were no gay officers on that, on that squad. Uh, I know the chief investigator, he's not the least bit anti-gay, but he just didn't have good sources, you know, and, uh, and they weren't getting the right information either, unfortunately. Um, and a lot of the people that were victims who were almost murdered didn't come forward. So it gets to be a very complicated story. Um, okay, yeah.
0: Well, maybe when you do that book, if you do it, and um, we'll have you back on. Oh, well, thank you very yeah. much. Talk appreciate it. Yeah. Um, our guest again has been James DeBro. Thank you very much for being on the thank show. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to
1: dot.